Well, uh, good morning, everyone. My name is David. I'm the liturgist here at the church, but it's my pleasure to deliver the message this morning. Uh, a message on a part of the Bible, which uh, you know, I'm thankful to Tom is introducing as the, the royal crown of uh, the, the epistles, uh, the high watermark that is Romans chapter 8. Uh, and everyone I've talked to that I've said I'm preaching on this section of Romans said, well, that's, that's the crescendo. Uh, I don't know if you know what a crescendo is, that climactic moment in a piece of music where the music's the loudest. It's, it's the climax of the most important chapter of the New Testament. People kept telling me as I was telling them I was going to preach on this. I talked to my dad, a former pastor. He said, that's the crescendo. I said, Peter, I'm preaching on this. He says, that's the crescendo. I'd never heard crescendo used so many times. Uh, and what did it do? Well, it intimidated me a little bit. Uh, a humble high school English teacher uh, having to preach on, uh, you know, the climax of the most important chapter of the New Testament. Uh, so I did what we all do when we're put into a place of stress or we're under pressure, which is I relied on my training. Now, unfortunately, my training is not in biblical theology. Uh, it's in American literature. Uh, so here we go. I'm going to start this sermon instead in the field I'm most comfortable with in American literature. Uh, but of course, there's a reason I'm sharing this. I think it connects to something we can learn from this passage from Paul. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the life of someone that's, I think it's pretty safe to say is thought of as the greatest poet in American literature, at least one of them, uh, and that is uh, the famous poet Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman was a poet uh, in the 19th century. He was writing from the mid-1800s into the late 1800s. Uh, his early work, and probably his most famous work, deals a lot with uh, him enjoying uh, the beauty of nature, uh, with him having this inclusive grand vision of all the peoples of America and the landscapes and nature and just celebrating all of it. And uh, there is a great joy uh, and uh, passion to Whitman's poetry. But in uh, the 1860s, uh, when he got to be about my age, into his early 40s, uh, the Civil War began. Now, Whitman, this passionate poet, was also a uh, strong supporter of the Union. He was a northerner. He, he was from New York. Uh, and uh, he was a big fan of not only the Union Army, but of, of America as a Union. He was a celebrator of America as an I idea. Uh, he was a strong, strong supporter of Abraham Lincoln. He was against slavery. So a lot of people expected that Whitman would jump into the war by enlisting as a soldier in the Union Army. Although, however, like I said, he's a poet that's mostly known for his love of nature uh, and uh, kind of this uh, joy de vivre. And he's not really the soldier type. So he didn't enlist in the Army, but his brother George did. Now, Whitman's first 
visit to a Civil War battlefield happened because he heard his brother George had been injured and he was now wounded and at a field hospital near a Civil War battlefield. So Whitman packed up his stuff and he ran down there to see how his brother was. Now luckily his brother was fine. It was a slight injury. Uh, he, uh, he was going to be okay. But when Whitman got down there, what he did see were acres and acres of the war wounded. He saw the great toll that this war was having on the people he loved so much, these American people. And it was greatly moving for Whitman, so much so that he decided to right then enlist, not as a soldier, but as a nurse uh, in these field hospitals. And he worked during the Civil War as a nurse tending the wounded. Uh, he's written a few poems about that experience, but uh, one that's uh, really wonderful is one called The Wound Dresser. I'd like to read to you a few uh, portions from it. In this poem, he sets up this idea that these young people come to him, this great poet, and say, how are you going to write about this war? And they seem to want him to, in Whitman's lines in the poem to describe the, quote, furious passions of unsurpassed heroes and the actions of, quote, the mightiest armies of earth, of those armies so rapid, so wondrous. Use that Whitman passion we know in your poetry to describe the glories of battle. And he writes that he almost does. He says, aroused and angry, I'd thought to beat the alarm and urge relentless war. But, he says, soon my fingers failed me, my face drooped, and I resigned myself to sit by the wounded and soothe them, or silently watch the dead. And this moment in the poem represents Whitman's great choice, not to pick up arms, but to, as he says, bear the bandages, water, and sponge. Straight and swift to my wounded I go, where they lie on the ground after the battle brought in, where their priceless blood reddens the grass, the ground, or to the rows of the hospital tent, or under the roofed hospital to the long rows of cots up and down each side I return. To each and all one after another I draw near. Not one do I miss, an attendant follows holding a tray. He carries a refuse pail, soon to be filled with clotted rags and blood, emptied and filled again. I onward go, I stop, with hinged knees and steady hand to dress wounds. I am firm with each. The pangs are sharp yet unavoidable. One turns to me his appealing eyes. Poor boy, I never knew you. Yet I think I could not refuse this moment to die for you, if that would save you. I include this poem because what we see is a choice, a specific type of response to the call to war. A choice not to serve on the battlefield, but the field hospital. And I think, ultimately, we'll see this message in the words of Paul in this section. 
This image of the field hospital was one that came to me as I pondered week after week the title of our sermon series, More Than Conquerors. As uh, the liturgist, I sit up in the front row every morning for usually two services, and I don't know if we have the graphic up there for our sermon series, but we have the title, More Than Conquerors, and we have the suit of armor. And I felt myself challenged with the idea of conquest. What do such words mean to us today? So many times when I think of conquerors and conquest, it's not a positive image that I have in my mind. And so as I kind of wrestled with this, after Peter sent the details of the sermon series and that this would be the title, I saw what verses I'd been assigned to teach on, and there was that phrase, more than conquerors. So I'd like to talk a little bit about a way we can think of that now. Now, uh, it's uh, in here amongst uh, many other verses. We've got 12. uh, So I'm going to read them all to you within this crescendo of Romans chapter 8, which as I finish, you will see why they call it that. So you can read along with me. Uh, Let's start Romans 8, verse 28, all the way to 39. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, we see why that is the climax of the chapter, because we end with one of the most powerful statements of the message of God's love and how secure we are in that love. And I think it's this message of God's love that we'll see gives us a new perspective on conquest. Which we need. 
Because the reason I think I was troubled is because conquest has a lot of baggage that it takes with it. I mean, even in the Bible itself, in the book of Revelation, we see a lot about the conquerors Rome, those who begin to persecute the church, the ultimate military might conquering the world. And unfortunately, we've also seen in history what happens when the church decides to literally take up that title of conquerors through military might. Maybe one of the more extreme versions of this happened in the late 15th century into the 16th century during the era of colonialism when Spanish conquistadors that reached the New World would reach it carrying a document that had been written for them from the church. It was meant to be read to the indigenous peoples of these new lands. Later became known as the requirement. I'll read to you a passage from it. And we see why we need a new way of looking at conquest. They would read this as they came to conquer the new world. We ask and require that you acknowledge the church as the ruler and superior of the whole world. Then they go on to say, but if you do not do this and maliciously make delay in it, I certify to you that with the help of God, we shall powerfully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and of their highnesses. We shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them. And as such shall sell and dispose of them as their highnesses may command. And we shall take away your goods and shall do you all the mischief and damage that we can. And we protest that the deaths and losses which shall accrue from this are your fault and not that of their highnesses or ours, nor of these gentlemen who come with us. Now we as Christians now react to this in dismay and horror. We say, no, we know now that that is not what we want to do. That is not the way of the kingdom of Jesus. Yet that is the way of military conquest. That is the way of the sword the way of danger, persecution, all these words that in this final section of Romans, Paul tells us to beware of. Yet we know they have no power over us. So then, what is a better vision of conquest? When I think of this term, more than conquerors, I often think it's saying we can be better than conquerors. We can be more than the idea of human conquest. Because we've been given a new way to think about conquest. I'd like to illustrate this first in a literary way, because I like to do that. Uh, And then bring it back to the Bible. We have a powerful literary example of a new way of conquest that's relevant to what Paul's saying. Uh, This is from a book that many of you are are probably uh, familiar with. It's from The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Whenever I say that, Christians go, yes, yes, we know that one. Uh, From the final book in the trilogy, uh, The Return of the King. Now, The Return of the King, the title itself is talking about when a king, this character Aragorn, 
finally is able to reclaim his uh, hereditary title of king. You see throughout the, the books, he's been displaced and has had to fight this long journey to regain his throne. Uh, he is uh, owed it by right of uh, his bloodline and also through uh, his uh, morality. You see, one of the biggest uh, climaxes of the book is a, a giant battle that happens at the city of Minas Tirith. This is the capital city of the uh, nation of Gondor, which is the main uh, ruling nation of uh, the kingdom of men in these books. It is under attack by the ultimate bad guys out of Mordor, led by the, the satanic figure of Sauron. Uh, and they're losing the battle, the city of Minas Tirith, until finally Aragorn comes with his reinforcements and is able to help them defeat the evil army. And we have a moment there where it is after the battle. They're sitting there outside the gates of the city, and one of the people fighting alongside Aragorn says to him, this is the time. Take your banner of the king and go claim your rightful place as the king. Even if the people there don't know who you are, you can take it because it's something you deserve, it's your right, and you have the power to do it. Knowing that this would be done through a manner of conquest, Aragorn says, no, I deem the time unripe, and I have no mind for strife except with our enemy and his servants. Meanwhile, within the city, we have these hospitals that are filling up with the war wounded. Many of them, uh, they can't seem to heal. They can't seem to heal the wounds delivered by the enemy. There's one woman, a nurse, that knows some of the old prophecies, and she says, it's said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so the rightful king could ever be known. This word gets back to Aragorn, and he does enter the city quietly, and he goes straight to the hospitals where, number one, because of his training uh, before this part in the book, but also because of some supernatural ability given to him by this prophecy, he's able to start healing these people. And he goes through the hospitals healing the sick and wounded. And in that way, he begins to conquer their hearts when they see that he is there out of love. And he does initiate his reign as king, not as a conqueror, but as a healer. Now this should sound familiar to us, because Aragorn, of course, this king who has been separated from his rightful throne is modeled after the ultimate king of reality and nature itself, Jesus Christ, who also entered not as a conqueror as many wanted him to be. When they said the Messiah's come, now is time to overthrow Rome, take up arms. But that wasn't how Jesus conquered. Peter describes it this way in the book of Acts. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and 
He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And that's what characterized conquest when it came to Jesus. He came as a healer and a liberator, not as a conqueror. So what this ends up doing is giving us an alternate vision of what conquest can mean. And I think it's important because the reason I'm discussing this with you now, the reason why even that word was heavy on my heart was because the idea of viewing the Christian mission as a war is one that worries me. When we start thinking in warlike terms, because our country is already too ready to go to war with each other. We're divided over so many issues that too often we hope to emerge as conquerors over our own brothers and sisters, those that we disagree with. Too often do we think that we must take up arms to defend the progress of the kingdom of heaven. And too often do we see our fellow Americans hold a cross in one hand and a gun in the other. So we need an alternate vision, one where we view our mission field not as the battlefield, but as the field hospital. When we look at the world, we see an opportunity, like Jesus did, like Aragorn, like Whitman, to tend the wounded. And to me, this seems fitting because we're not being called in these verses to wage a war, but to recognize that a war has already been won. In his commentary on this section of Romans, theologian James Dunn talks about the term hypernikomen, which is the Greek phrase that we get more than conquerors from. And he says, yes, you can translate that as more than conquerors, but you can also translate it that through him who loved us, we have won a glorious victory. And when we look at it that way, we realize we have no need to conquer anything because Jesus conclusively conquered and defeated death itself. The war is won. He says in Romans 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life in that ultimate moment of victory, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, these aren't the words that invite us into conflict and competition, because no one is in competition with the children of the Most High God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And yes, there are forces in opposition to that kingdom work that God wants us to be done. And we have to contend with that, but I believe that these forces are largely trying to stop us from doing the work of tending the poor, tending to the sick, and healing the wounded. So in the end, I believe that is a great commission to us, to tend the wounded. Jesus himself said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I desire mercy, not sacrifice.
So we, like Whitman, can bear the bandages, water, and sponge, and straight and swift to the wounded we should go. And if we can't see that field hospital in our society, you need to take a drive. Neighborhood after neighborhood that I've lived in, in Los Angeles, now has literally taken on the look of a field hospital, an encampment of suffering. And possibly this is one of the great legacies of St. Andrews. It's the work that this church does, tending the wounded there through our homeless program. People like Miriam, like Michael, all the volunteers for that program are tending the wounded. And in many other ways we do too. Because in the end it's our responsibility. Because the wounded are out there and we're the ones with the medicine. The medicine to give to those who've been hurt by a world of sin. And that medicine as Paul describes at the end of this chapter, is the knowledge of Jesus' saving love. As he writes, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in that we hear a message of a great victory and a good news to spread to those who need to know that the war has been won and that God awaits them with a secure love that they cannot be separated from. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just pray that your Holy Spirit be on the hearts of us all to illuminate this world and the needs of it and to give us the knowledge of your love and the strength to spread that love across a world of suffering, Lord. We thank you that you love us and that the war has already been won in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now let's